The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 161 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I became an activist for family caregiving after retiring from medical practice. Our topic today is circles of support for mental illness. Now, here are some of the relevant things I've learned about family caregivers and family caregiving from this show, Family Caregivers Unite. First, family caregivers are the members of families who provide their caregiving to partners, parents, children, brothers, sisters, cousins, friends, and neighbors. And family caregivers are also persons who are themselves have experienced mental illnesses and uh, developmental disorders. They're called peers. Family caregivers' caregiving includes their being the eyes, the ears, and the voices of their family members. It includes advocating and navigating for them. Family caregivers' caregiving often involves family caregivers themselves needing help, help that lies outside the usual scope of the healthcare and social systems, such as knowledge of other family caregivers' experiences and innovations, or financial advice, or spiritual support, or peer support. Family caregivers' caregiving too often costs them their own physical, psychological, and financial health. Family caregivers' caregiving is a hard road to travel. Having traveled it, they often look back to offer a helping hand to family caregivers just starting out, which is why the topic, Circles of Support for Mental Illness, is so important. And to discuss it, our guest is Lee Helmer. Now, Lee is the director of a peer-led organization in Halton Region, Ontario, Canada, known as TEACH. Lee is a father, a grandfather, a husband, and a career professional who has contended with acquired brain injury and bipolar illness. The services of TEACH include managing anxiety workshops, self-esteem groups, concurrent disorders groups, peer mentors, and the circle of care for families. All of the staff members and all of the 40 volunteers providing services have themselves struggled with their own mental health challenges. The staff members and the volunteers are peers who are in the forefront of advocating for the principles of recovery, hope, meaningful activity, 
self-awareness, supportive relationships, and empowerment, and building on strengths to enable people to have a meaningful life. So, welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you, Gordon. Now, first question for you is, please tell us more about your own experience with family caregivers and family caregiving. Well, my, my own personal experience was really uh, initially at the time that I experienced uh, my, my acquired brain injury back in 1982. I contracted spinal meningitis and, and uh, encephalitis. And once out of hospital, I was definitely exhibiting bipolar symptoms, um, lack of, of impulse control, uh, a lot of angry outbursts. Um, and what both my wife and I struggled with was the lack of supports for families themselves. Um, I was managing to see a psychiatrist off and on, but my my wife and my children really had no support whatsoever in the community, and um, that really made their journey in contending with my behaviors um, a very isolated experience and a real hardship. And so I've had an interest in uh, not only assisting people now with learning how to manage their their mental illnesses, but also to provide supports for the family members. Lee, please tell us about your own experience, to use your word, with managing the mental health and related challenges that you experienced. I think one of the, the most difficult things for me initially was to reach an acceptance that I did have a mental illness. Um, there's a lot of denial that took place on my part, and it's, it's not uncommon for, for individuals with a mental illness to go into denial. It's also not uncommon for family members to to also struggle with the the fact that one of their loved ones is struggling with a mental illness. So on my part, it was many years, actually, of my being in denial and misinterpreting the care that my wife was offering me and the love that she was offering me with... uh, the sense that she was imposing restrictions on me, which in turn would cause me to be even more reactive. So um, it it really was that struggle. But the other part of the struggle with the mental illness was my finally coming to an acceptance that I needed to be on medication. And for me, it was... I, I often say that that people who are placed on uh, medication for a mental illness are, in a sense, guinea pigs. There's there is still so little known about the the human brain, and so the the psychiatrists and MDs very often themselves struggle with finding the 
right medication and the right amount of medication. And there are a lot of side effects during that whole process. So struggling through that, and finally, again, it took a number of years where I finally reached the point with the psychiatrist that I was seeing where the right medication and the combination of medications finally was found. And that really helped me to manage my illness, the bipolar aspects. Lee, let's now open the conversation about TEACH, your organization. So what does, it, what does its name mean and what does it do? Lee? Well, TEACH itself stands for Teach, Empower, and advocate for community health. And the, the significance is that we made a decision some time ago that um, the ability to best manage a mental illness was through the accumulation of knowledge. That power, really, is knowledge. And knowledge is power. So that we found that rather than approaching the supports on the basis of clinical supports, because that was something that was being provided by clinicians, hospitals, social workers and such, that what we wanted to do was to educate on a peer basis, from from a, one individual who had struggled with their own mental health challenges, sharing their knowledge with others who are struggling. And by that sharing of information, we were then able to convey greater self-esteem, enhancing the individual's self-esteem, enhancing their skills at better managing, their skills at being able to recognize symptoms where perhaps they were uh, going to be on the verge of having a relapse. One of the things that uh, we've also found that really is empowering and enables someone to, to be less resistive to accepting the fact that they do have a mental illness and that they are therefore more open to, to learning about their mental illness and learning some management techniques is the fact that the majority of our work is provided in group settings, approximately 12 individuals. And ironically, it's very empowering for someone who initially walks into a room very apprehensively particularly if they're dealing with anxiety, and suddenly within a matter of 15 or 20 minutes discover that they're, because of the exchange of, of conversation that goes on within that group, even though they've never met that first time, um, that they suddenly realize that they're no longer in isolation. And it's that isolation that has been so very destructive both to the individual and to family members, because I've also found that family members tend at times to turn 
in on themselves, that they they find that it's not acceptable to be able to talk about the mental illness that's going on within their family and because of the stigma. And so they have become isolated as well. So overcoming that isolation has become very empowering. And that is one of the things that, that we have found that inspires the hope and the learning process. You're talking about stigma. Is that something that you specifically talk about um, when you're in one of the workshops or during the programs? Is that something you address with, your, with the people you're helping? And, and very often, uh, before we even address that, the individuals will begin to speak to that, that they, they have found difficulty finding employment, they have found uh, extreme difficulty in finding any kind of intimate relationships um, because of the fear that people have of them. In in reality, they're the cast-offs, they're the lepers, um, and and so the stigma aspect, if we don't raise it as a particular topic item, um, that certainly does come out voluntarily. However, we do touch on stigma, and the other thing that we do is that we have held some workshops around stigma. Right. We also have our, our members in TEACH uh, participate in various community activities in the sense of um, we have some who are public speakers who voluntarily go out into the, uh, the uh, local high schools, for example, and speak to classes about their mental illness and about how they live their lives and better manage their illness. We have a number of our members who sit on uh, committees in the community, um, some as, as high up as um, government committees. And hey, I'm going to stop you at that point. I, I regret having to do this, but we have to take a break at this particular moment. We, Very well. We, re- we really are coming back. You see, we have to pay our rent. So... <laughs> So, I understand. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Lee Helmer. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, BC, Canada. Please stay with us. We will be back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you happy with the management and leadership style of your organization? Do you think it could use some improvement? No matter the level of leadership at your organization, you'll be sure to learn something new when you tune in to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Through a unique lecture and interview format, we'll bring you ideas, questions, and answers that will help you run any organization, whether for-profit or not. Listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. 
VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Lee Helmer. Our topic is Circles of Support for Mental Illness. Now let's talk about how teach helps with mental health conditions and the challenges of those conditions. So Lee, please tell us about the staff and the volunteers for teach programs and give us some examples of the way they work with the programs. All of our staff um, have post-secondary education. We've had uh, registered nurses working for us, masters of social work, bachelors of social work, um, and the other, um, we could call it a bona fide uh, employment requirement or occupational um, suggestion that we place a great deal of emphasis on is a preference for people who've also had their their own lived experience with a mental illness. So aside from myself, who who contends with bipolar, uh, we have a couple of staff who deal with high anxiety, and they have learned to manage that and cope with it. The volunteers themselves, with their illnesses, range uh, in a broad spectrum. We've had um, individuals who have had a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, We've had uh, members who are diagnosed with bipolar, um, some who have been diagnosed as borderline personalities, and uh, many of them with clinical depression. And what they are able to do is to speak comfortably with others about the fact that they have these diagnoses but that they are more than the diagnosis. They are more than the illness. And they are people with um, ambitions, people with, uh, with joys. They also have despondent times, but they weather those. They are individuals who are able to uh, socialize. And as I mentioned earlier, um, to go back into the community and contribute to the community through public speaking engagements, um, through um, conferences that they attend and participate in, and through co-facilitating workshops that we provide. They co-facilitate the groups that we we provide, and the groups entail managing anxiety, um, self-esteem groups, concurrent disorder groups, and the circle of care for family members. We also have what we call a peer mentor program. And what that really entails is an individual who has progressed in their recovery 
to the point where they wish to work with someone who, on a one-to-one basis, who has not progressed as far as they have in their recovery. And it's not quite a friendship. It's more of a mentoring role. And the best example I can give you of that is a gentleman who had a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, and he has struggled all of his life with that, has had major relapses at times. Um, But he came to us, went through a number of our workshops, decided that he wished to become a peer mentor. And at the same time, I had had referred to us a young man who was 21 at the time who had just dropped out of university. He had a diagnosis of severe depression, and he really was struggling and very isolated. The other significant factor that I took into consideration is the young man had, uh, in a sense, lost his father. His father had experienced a traumatic brain injury when this young man was 13 years of age, and the father was institutionalized. So he had never really, during his adolescence, had a male figure in his life. Gary, who was our peer mentor, um, I paired the two of them up, and we had met together, the three of us, and we had talked, and it ended up that they, they appeared to be comfortable enough to go out for a coffee. And I checked back in with them a day later, and they were both interested in continuing to get together. And they did so, but Gary called me one day about um, a month and a half, six, six weeks uh, into their mentoring relationship, and he said to me, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, all we do is we go out for coffee. And we sit around and we talk a little bit, but shouldn't I be doing more? And I said to to Gary, Gary, you're doing the most important thing. You're spending time with this young man. Time that he's never had from a male. Time that he's never had with his father. And you're spending time simply being with him. And that's often what I have found with the peers that we we have and the significance of peer support is that simply being with a person and having the time to listen, not to impose our views, but to simply listen, has, has had significant and enormous impact on people's lives. In this particular instance, this young man ended up going back to university. He had a girlfriend. Previously to going back to university, he found a part-time job, and he maintained his contact with Gary. And that, to me, was, um, and, and still is to this day, a prime example of the importance of peer mentoring, of simply being with a person, not having any great expectations that they're going to meet your needs. You're simply there for them. Now, I want to follow up on that with a question that goes in a different direction, Lee, and that is, I want to ask you what the challenges are that are created by mental health conditions, like the ones you've been talking about, for persons 
and their family caregivers. And although you've already covered this to some extent, I want you to say more about the types of help that are needed to meet those challenges. So what are the challenges and what are the types of help that, in your experience, are needed to help meet those challenges? I've I've given this a lot of thought, and in fact, I've spoken with with my staff about this uh, more frequently um, and on a recent basis because what I really do believe is needed is the gift of time. And by that I mean when I initially was uh, taking my social work training, there was a great deal of emphasis placed on the importance of active listening skills, of being able to simply be with the person and listen and hear the messages behind the words, hear the emotional content behind the words, and to be able to provide feedback to the person and clarification so that you were very, very much in tune with what they were saying. And that gift of time to provide active listening is something that we seem to have lost in this day and age, that everything is rushed, everything is is caught up in rushing around and trying to do a multitude of tasks. And the other thing that is very prominent that highlights that is I was talking with a clinical nurse recently, and she she works in a mental health clinic, and she has a caseload of over 100. There is absolutely no opportunity for her to be able to spend time with the people that she supports and to be able to spend time actively listening and to be with those individuals, to make them feel that they are being heard. And that is a component that we are losing in our society. And I think that that um, society in general needs to come to grips with that. I had a, a woman wander into our offices, clearly struggling with severe mental illness. Um, with, and I'm, I'm not a, a diagnostician. I would say that based upon what she shared with me, she was struggling with paranoid schizophrenia. But we spent a good 90 minutes just sitting together. And she was very fearful at the time, initially. Um, Became more comfortable over a period with me. But I wasn't doing a lot of probing questions, which um, oftentimes is what the mental health services now do do because of their need to to um, find answers and to provide service. What One of the things that she said to me, she said she'll often sit at the curb in uh, the community that she lives in, and she watches the birds and the flocks of birds that fly, and one bird turns a certain way, and the whole flock follows that. And she'll turn to people passing her and say, look at the beautiful birds. Look at what they're doing. And she said to me, these people 
people are constantly texting on their cell phones. They don't see that beauty. And it really stunned me when she said that, because to me, again, that epitomized one of the things that we are losing in today's society of rushing and electronics and and not really being in touch with one another. So that's one of the challenges. I think that's the greatest challenge that people need to to contend with now is how do you find time simply to care for others but also care for yourself? And that's the struggle that family members often have. They burn out because they expend so much time and energy caring for the, the ill member of the family that they themselves burn out because they cannot find the time to provide self-care. Lee, that's very powerful. And we'll talk more about on these general lines in the next segment. But talking of time, it's that time that we have to take a break. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Lee Helmer. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Power River Community Radio, BC, Canada. Stay tuned. We're coming back. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Are you ready for real change in your life? Deep down inside you is a magnificent being just looking to break free. Tune in to Manifesting Abundance with Deborah Loran and Jim Del Vecchio. Most people need to make some minor adjustments in attitude and behavior to achieve alignment with their inner being. Jim and Deborah will help outline these changes and give you the steps you need to create some major improvements in your life. Listen for Manifesting Abundance Thursdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Lee Helmer. Our topic is Circles of Support for Mental Illness. Now let's talk more about the ways teach helps persons with the challenges of mental health conditions and their help family caregivers. And let's also talk about the consequences if they don't get the help they need. So first of all, Lee, please explain the purposes in more detail of the help that TEACH provides and give us some more examples. The, uh, I have touched on the fact that we do use education as a powerful tool in order for people to to better manage their their illnesses, uh, 
Um, we also make efforts to have them become less isolated to enable them to connect with various um, community groups, um, community committees, um, to participate in workshops, um, along with professionals. And that has been a real eye-opener for professionals, but also an empowerment for the, uh, the individuals that struggle with a mental illness. To uh, sit in a, a conference, for example, and of, of, say, 300 people, and to have these individuals speak to their life struggle and to speak to how they have learned to better manage their illness, to be more sensitive to the symptomatology that indicates they may be having a relapse or on the verge of a relapse, um, is, again, an empowering process for them. It's also an eye-opener for many of the professionals as well. We do um, engage um, ourselves by going, for example, um, I have spoken to um, a variety of police forces where they are to, they are trying to gain a better understanding of how to work with individuals who are mentally ill. So I have gone in and I have done presentations, and I've also had members of, of TEACH go in and do presentations to the police forces um, to better assist them in gaining an understanding of how you would approach someone who is mentally ill, how you might best approach someone who is very paranoid, very fearful, feeling very isolated. And the other thing is that what we are doing is we're also working with a few other peer-led organizations to support them in their training of their staff so that their staff are better equipped to, to uh, provide peer supports to the individuals that are connecting with them. Tell us more about TEACH programs, but particularly the way you develop the programs. And again, give us some examples of the way you set about developing one or more of the programs and the kind of things that you did and learned as you were doing the developing. Lee? The, um, I think it's, it's very critical that any program development that we do is based upon eliciting information from the general community and from the community that we ultimately will serve. So one of the first things that we did as we were formulating the, the Managing Anxiety program was we had to determine, because we have limited resources in the way of staffing and funding, we had to determine what was the highest priority or what was the, the greatest need identified by the general population, but also by the professionals that serve individuals and families with, uh, that are engaged with the mental health and addictions communities. So what we did was we held focus groups 
staff would literally advertise um, locations and times whereby people who had an interest in mental health and addiction services would be able to come out and talk about what they saw the needs as being and also prioritizing those needs. And the focus groups really lasted for approximately three months. And we covered all of the, the locations in our, the rural locations as well as the urban locations in the region that we, we serve. And then we sat down with that information from the focus groups and sifted through it. And really that helped identify initially that the managing anxiety was something that, that was identified as a priority. And so based upon that information, we researched various sources on you. how best to manage anxiety. And we put together the actual workshop from that. And presented the workshop, and what we did was, and we do this with all of our workshops and all of our groups, is we do uh, a pre-evaluation around what the people are hoping to gain from the workshop. And then we do an evaluation at the very end of the workshop. What have they learned? What have they gained? What skills are new to them? And then we also do a six-month follow-up with the individuals who've participated. And we take that information and we very carefully examine it to enable us to tweak the workshops, to improve them, to make them more significant. And we are exceptionally lucky that one of the staff has over 20 years research background. And so she is really able to provide um, some very sophisticated tools for us to use. Um, one of them is called the HOPE Scale, and it's, it's readily available to any organization that wishes to use it. But by using the HOPE Scale, you can see where the person has started from and whether or not there has been growth on their part in their ability to better manage their illness. So we build that in. We build the evaluative components in as well. And the other thing that we do is we have ongoing dialogue with the professional organizations to uh, determine whether or not they are hearing back from mutual clients, if I can use that term, um, as to whether or not the individuals that they serve who have participated in TEACH programs are finding it useful. And um, that has been also very helpful for us. Now, Lee, I want to ask you a question uh, about consequences, and that, that is the consequences for persons and their family caregivers if they don't get or they don't take the help that TEACH offers what are those consequences? Well, the consequences are, in, in many respects, and I don't want to sound over dramatic when I say this, but it's really true. I don't know of any family or any indiv- 
who has a member who is struggling with a mental illness, nor do I know of any individual who has not received help, who is happy, who is experiencing life in a more positive way, and their lives ultimately are are relatively hellish. Um, sleepless nights, police at the door, um, homelessness, lack of, of employment, lack of social relationships, social isolation, all of those factors, as a consequence, um, will remain very, very prominent in their lives. And I'm not suggesting that teach is a cure. We don't, we don't regard what we offer as a cure. We simply regard it as a better way of managing one's life, of having a life worth living. And I think that that's what we do offer, as opposed to families or individuals continuing to struggle with um, the pain, and it's genuine pain, the pain that they live with 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So would it be fair to say then at least one set of consequences, and there are many, that the TEACH programs offset or combat would be the kind of stress and strain for the person and for the family that leads them back, so to speak, into the healthcare system requiring healthcare. In other words, Though you're not offering a cure, and you said that very clearly, you nevertheless are offering a way of life that's healthier than it might otherwise be. Is that right? It is very right. And, and what we do is we offer hope. And that's, that's an intangible in many respects, but we do offer hope. And I think that is certainly one of the things that, that many of the families and many of the individuals have lost over time. Um, they've struggled so long and so hard, either in isolation or feeling that the system is not responsive to them. And they've lost that hope. And what we try to do is to demonstrate that hope can be regained. And that's significant. It may be enough to stop someone from committing suicide. It may be enough for couples not divorce because they are burned out. That's something that um, I think I want to just press you on a little bit further because it's so important. Um, that is to say, the constant consequence of not getting the kind of help that Teach offers, it can be family breakdown, can be suicide, maybe suicide, and can be burdens everywhere on the healthcare system, on the social services system, on the family, and on the individuals. Now, again, am I overstating that, or is that a, an accurate perception? No, you're not, over, you're not overstating it, Gordon. It's, it is the reality. Um, and, and an example that I can give you is uh, approximately a year ago, I ended up taking a phone call, and there was a gentleman on the end of the line. He was a father 
um, and he was literally in tears. And it it was a, a man who was totally frustrated and totally defeated by trying to find the help that he needed for his son. And he had been bounced from one organization to another organization to another organization. Now, in our particular province, there is considerable work being done on developing uh, what is called the no-wrong-door policy and practice so that an individual family member or families themselves do not have to end up bouncing from pillar to post, finding the, the right help. Right. Lee, unfortunately, I have to take the break at this particular moment, but we will be coming back to that key, key issue. So this is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Lee Helmer. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, BC, Canada. Please stay tuned. We're coming back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com If you are having difficulty balancing everything in your life, be sure to tune in to Change is Personal with Kim Fuller. Each week, we'll help you do your own self-assessment to handling relationships, family, life challenges, health, and personal goals. Kim and her guests share from experiences and offer advice and resources to keep your life on track. Change is Personal with Kim Fuller can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen and start having a fuller life. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Lee Helmer. Our topic is Circles of Support for Mental Illness. Now let's talk about more help for persons and their family caregivers confronted by the challenges of mental health conditions, and your messages. Lee, your messages. So first is, in what ways would you like to see more help provided by the healthcare and social services systems to persons, the persons we've been talking about, and their family caregivers, who we've also been talking about? Lee? The, uh, one of the, the greatest gaps in service on the part of healthcare and mental health services and addictions is the lack of psychiatrists, for example, um, and the lack of 
other services that could be used that would be paid for by benefits plans, for example. The most individuals, if they're working and they have benefits through their company, will find that if they cannot get a referral to a psychiatrist, and psychiatrists, generally speaking, have lengthy waiting lists because um, either because many of them are involved simply in research or they have such a heavy, heavy caseload that they cannot take someone on for months and months and months, that if they cannot see a psychiatrist, which would be covered by the, the uh, provincial health plan here, then their benefits plan will only allow them to see psychologist, and only for a time-limited period, usually three visits at the most. And so one is faced with the fact that what other services are available without lengthy waiting lists, and that is one of the greatest detriments and deficits that we have with our, our overall health care system is there aren't enough qualified people um, and there aren't alternatives to those qualified people. And in some respects, that's why peer support came into place, is that um, we felt that that lived experience could provide supports that the professionals simply were unable to provide. Um, but some of the other challenges are that the, the uh, emergency departments at hospitals are overwhelmed. And how they manage that is, is a critical factor. If you have someone who goes to emerge because they are having a major relapse with their illness, they may or may not be admitted. Very often, the admission is based upon whether or not the consulting psychiatrist at the emergency department perceives them at that given point as being a danger to themselves or to others. And it has to be seen by the psychiatrist in the emergency department at that point. That person may have been threatening to, to harm themselves or harm someone else at the time that um, the police became involved or a crisis line became involved prior to their getting to hospital. But unless the psychiatrist sees it right then and there, the laws are such that they, they will not admit them. And so the person ends up back on the street, back into the community, with minimal, if any, support whatsoever. And that's a major challenge within our system as well. Now, I'm going to ask you what your message is for healthcare and social services professionals regarding the kind of additional help you've just identified as being necessary. So in other words, what do you say to these professionals? What's your message to them? Well, one of the things that I think, in fact, I do know for a fact, 
needs to be conveyed. And by the professionals, I also include the politicians, because to me, that's where a lot of the decision-making rests around the health care system. In our particular province, only about 4% of the provincial budget goes towards services for the mentally ill. And that's a very small percentage of, of a billions and billions and billions of dollars on the part of the uh, provincial government funding. So advocating for a greater slice of the pie, I believe, is something that um, both peer support services such as TEACH and also the professional services, doctors, psychiatrists, nurses, um, are really needing to be in the forefront of, of advocate, advocacy, of, of convincing the provincial government that there needs to be a larger slice than, than a mere 4%. Um, that 4% is, is not wasted. It, it is amazing how conscientious non-profit organizations, health service organizations, are in, in stretching the dollars. It's the old proverb, getting blood out of a stone, but we somehow managed to do that. So advocacy, although um, that sometimes is a bad word in the, the eyes of, of some, the minds of some, um, being able to introduce peer supports within the medical system itself, um, for example, having a peer support worker literally physically located at the hospital and working with people in the inpatient ward so that you can begin to talk about recovery versus the, the um, traditional disease model. And we don't throw out the disease model in the sense that, that it's not applicable. We acknowledge the fact that, that mental illness is an illness. Um, and more and more, the research is indicating that, that it is a brain uh, malfunction. But we also believe that you can combine the, the disease model with the recovery model, and the parties can work together on that. Now, and, that, and, I'm going to interrupt you. Go ahead. Uh, because we, time always is a tyranny in this business, but they... <laughs> Last question I want to ask you, your last message is the most important one, which is why I interrupted you. So what's your message of hope for family caregivers and their family members? Lee? Hope is something that is absolutely necessary for humans in general. But if we lose hope, we self-sabotage, we literally relinquish strengths that we have. Um, th one of the things that I've been fascinated with, for example, is there have been studies done on individuals who went through the, the Holocaust and went through the prison camps, and those that survived, survived very much on having hope. And they were able to then move on after the war and have lives that were fulfilling for them. 
And that's really what we're wanting to convey to to the people that we work with and the families that we work with is don't give up hope that there is uh, a better life for them and we are prepared to assist them to find that. Leah, I'm just going to summarize back to you in this way. That's a message of hope about hope. That is to say, hope, you're saying, is something that is profoundly valuable. And what you're also saying and have said is that the kind of help that your peer support staff and volunteers provide, which creates the what I call the listening space, the time, for people, family caregivers, and the persons you're helping to actually talk with each other, to actually listen with each other. And so in that sense, your message of hope is that the kind of help that they need, family caregivers and their family members, actually is available. And then another message, and this is perhaps me going a little bit far, is we have to, all of us, have to advocate for that. That is to say, um, there are many, many pressures everywhere on the money in healthcare systems, and there are some very powerful influences, and we know all about that. But it seems that uh, what you're doing, and others like you are doing, I imagine, similar things, need to be recognized for what they're doing, which is providing help and hope for illnesses which are very troublesome, which cause the healthcare system lots of problems, and which are can be very harsh indeed on the people who have those illnesses and their families who look after them. So that is my interpretation of the message of hope for you, and it's also saying... To everybody who's listening, please listen to Lee when he asks about advocacy because it matters. So we are now getting close to the end of this episode, unfortunately. So I want to say, first of all, thank you, Lee, for sharing with us not only uh, your insights and your advice, in, but also your experience and also being so open with us about um the experiences you've had. So I'm wanting, wanting to say on behalf of everybody, for the sake of everybody, for the hope of everybody, all success to you and your colleagues in the work you're doing, because it's a work of hope. Thank you, Gordon. I, uh, I greatly appreciate it, and you're very welcome. Thank you. Now, I also want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll talk about compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.